Well, brethren, it's been uh, good to spend the morning and lunchtime with you, and uh, thank you for your specific interest in the work of the Lord back home in, in Zambia and indeed uh, in, in Africa. I heard the appeal that was made for those of you who would be interested to find your way there in service, and I trust if you ever find yourself in my neck of the woods that you would, we would link up and uh, not only have fellowship together but also serve together. Turn with me to Matthew and chapter 22. Matthew 22 and we will be reading verse 34 to verse 40. We're looking at the subject of pastoral preaching and thus far we have dealt with the nature of pastoral preaching and the demands of pastoral preaching. And if I can just quickly emphasize while you get into Matthew 22, uh, what I spoke about in terms of demands, because if you faint along the way in any of these two areas, you are clearly uh, bringing to a quick close a ministry which otherwise would have continued benefiting many. The one is preaching and praying, preaching and praying, preaching and praying. Never give up on any of those two. And when I say preaching, I'm talking about really bringing the word of God to the hearts of people. And then on the other hand is the preaching clearly and preaching relevantly, learning to use words, the vehicle through which preaching happens. That's an ongoing demand, and may God help each one of us never to tire in ensuring that those two aspects are upheld. Now we're coming to deal with the power of pastoral preaching. The power of pastoral preaching. I'm coming from a background uh, in Africa where the issue of power is a very relevant issue. And it's, it's not so much in terms of uh, constitutional authority, but it is more in terms of some mystical other world that people are unable to completely comprehend but definitely enables them to behave in a particular way. And therefore, the, the more popular understanding of power in pastoral preaching is not so much in the conveyance of truth plainly to every man's conscience, as the Apostle Paul had put it, but rather it is to a way of speaking that suggests that a person is possessed by some kind of spirit. And then when all that is over, it is in laying hands on people and then they are falling over. That is showing that this person has power and consequently let's go to hear him. Now that's a far cry from what the Bible speaks about. 
And what I want to do in dealing with power in pastoral preaching is to anchor it in the two greatest commandments. And that's why I am bringing you to this passage of scripture, Matthew 22. In other words, it's something that must not be divorced from love for God and love for his people. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I'm interested in Jesus' answer with respect to this is the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. In other words, you, we make a big mistake when we begin to seek for power as an end in itself. Power in order for you to be some kind of unique leader and people are following you. I'd like to suggest to you that if that's your attitude with respect to seeking power, then you are guilty of idolatry. And that idolatry is either the power itself or it is you who has become the idol. And you want to be the center of attention of the people of God. And therefore, that is wrong. Rather, as we think about power, we must be thinking within the context of my love for God. And that it is as I love the Lord and live for him that consequently the people of God are seeing my example and seeking to also live for God. And I want to break it down, therefore, into three subheadings using the greatest of the commandments, and that is loving God with your heart, your soul, and your mind. And I'll begin with the last, and that is loving the Lord with your mind. Brethren, that's the first source of power. And it is this, our knowledge of God. Our knowledge of God. The first that we ourselves have to know God 
Because in that thirst, we will often find ourselves in that room we call our study and we are reading. The reason why we are doing it is not to impress the congregation. It is, as Paul would say in the book of Philippians, oh, that I might know him. And clearly, what it will mean in seeking to love the Lord with your mind is that you will turn to the book of books that is the Bible and you will read it regularly. You will do so again, not simply to prepare sermons, but it is because you want to know this God. You want to know his ways. And his ways are revealed to you in the scriptures. And so you will deliberately curve out time. You will deliberately protect the time when you read the Bible for yourself as a means of seeking to know this God. Therefore, those of you who are perhaps beginning pastoral ministry or you are somebody who was within and consequently heading back, make sure that you have a place where you spend time in this book to feed yourself. Because I want to assure you that it is as you stand before God and before God's people and you are opening up this book in a way that clearly shows your people this man knows the God that he's speaking about. This is not just exegetical speedwork. This is somebody showing us who God is the ways of God through this book. And it's because you dwell in it yourself. May I also suggest that you have a pattern for your Bible reading. So that you are in a way going through the scriptures regularly and not just in certain parts of the Bible. Because it must be the whole of the Bible for the whole of your life and consequently the whole of the Bible for God's people. Read it regularly and read it systematically. In loving the Lord with your mind, I also want to go a step further and speak in terms of reading other spiritual books. Reading other spiritual books. Thankfully, I am speaking in a country where getting Christian books is not like 
looking for diamonds. Brethren, to whom much is given, much more will be required. You are a blessed people. I wish I had opportunity to beam onto the wall here some of what pastors back home referred to as libraries, their own libraries. You would be convicted of ingratitude. The Lord has provided abundantly. And again, don't read those books simply because you want to show off knowledge. Or, as we'll come on to read in a moment, simply because you want to prepare some sermons. Read because you want to grow in your knowledge of God. You want to know this God. And consequently, you will go to those books that stretch you. Remember, God is an ocean Without a shore, he is a sun without a sphere. There is enough in God and in his ways to occupy the greatest mind possible on this side of eternity. And therefore, you've not arrived, you will never arrive. I plead with you. Read other spiritual books. Let me add to this, that in a way, this gives birth to an ongoing freshness. I think it's Pejon who says that those who don't read other minds, in the end, don't have any mind of their own with listening to or something to that effect. I think that's a valid point. When you are not constantly taking in, there's a sense in which that which is inside you becomes stale. And pastoral ministry sometimes can be very lonesome. You're just listening to old wives' tales around you. Local gossip. And that's not going to enrich your ministry. You need to, as it were, plug into the outside world, so to speak. So that you are getting in a freshness that continues to be emanating through your preaching ministry. Again, it's not because you want to be fresh. It is because you want to know God. You love God with your mind. And so you are reading other books relative to that. One of the dangers of Bible college or seminary training is the sense when you reach your graduation, that's it. Done. I've got the knowledge. You haven't. As someone once said to me long ago, 
All you've done is you've put your foot on the first rung of the ladder. That's all your professors help you to do. To get on the ladder. The rest is what you do henceforth. Brethren, let me appeal. This thirst to know God. He has revealed himself in creation. He has revealed himself in scripture. He continues to reveal himself through the many minds across history that have consequently penned down their thoughts. And we have these classics that we can engage our brains with and consequently appreciate this God all the more. Let me continue here because his salvation is something that can easily become stale. That some Jesus or rather, somehow or other became a man and at some time or other found himself at a cross and somehow died and rose again, that's not likely to give you quite a push for the rest of your life in ministry. But to, to keep digging those wells, to keep opening various veins of saving truth is something that's going to make you stand in that pulpit wishing you had 100 lives. Because the word of God, when you read it, seems to be richer and deeper because other minds have informed your mind. Your own people that you are ministering to desperately need an ever fresh mind in the pulpit. Desperately need that. And it's our job to make sure we are doing that. I was going to speak a little bit more about reading for sermon preparations. But ultimately, all I'm going to say there is, again, make sure that you are reading as widely as possible in preparing for your messages. But that doesn't mean, I'm sure you've been taught that, that you carry everything else with you into the pulpit. Because a sermon is but one message. Your people already know that you are educated. There's no need for you to try and impress them with it. So, yes, a lot of the preparation for, sermon, for sermons will be to enrich yourself and your own knowledge of God, but do it also in terms of preaching. The most difficult here, as we will say also on prayer, is that of protecting the time. Protecting the time. And yet, therein lies your power. And friends, 
if you're going to get into pastoral ministry, you aim for the long haul. You do. Therefore, protect your study time as much as possible. When I was entering into pastoral work, an older pastor said this to me. And I'm glad even at that moment I thought there was something wrong. He said you should aim to be a pastor of a church for, for only five years. And then after five years, move on to another congregation. In fact, he was saying it in a pastor's retreat. So there were quite a number of younger pastors sitting to hear him. And then he put out his hands and said, the, when you go into a pastorate, you are here and your people are here. And in about five years, they catch up with you. So you are wiser to move away because then there's a lot of discontentment that creeps up in the church. My problem, even then, and I was hardly a year in the pastorate, my problem was, while the people are catching up with you, what are you doing? What are you doing? Surely, you too should be immersed in the pursuit of God with your mind, growing in your knowledge of him. And consequently, you are but a step ahead of your people. But let's go on, because there is, we're still in this uh, statement about uh, loving God with your heart and with your soul and with your mind. I'm thinking in terms of the soul being that aspect of our being that is able to be in actual fellowship with God. That's able to interact with God. That's able to engage with God as a man relates to his fellow man. And therefore, I'm thinking here primarily in terms of simply wanting to be with him. Wanting to be with God in fellowship. Let's use the example of um, marriage. I was saying to somebody just yesterday that one advantage we have these days with uh, the improvement of technology is that I can be so far away from my family and yet I'm able to communicate with them fairly regularly. And even be able to see them through this computer screen. And then the person I was talking to said, yes. But no, there's still something extra about being in the presence of the person you love. The person you love. And sometimes we refer to such a person as your soul mate. There is a connection that is there between you and that person that's indescribable. You have fellowship, yes, long distance, but you want to be together. Brethren, 
when we're speaking about the prayer life of the pastor, that's what we should be speaking about. It's this fellowship with God. It's where you want to be with him. And I want to suggest to you that it's yet another source of power in terms of the preaching ministry. In the earlier session that we had together, you will remember that I went to Acts chapter 6 and, and we saw the apostles speaking in terms of not only preaching, but we are giving ourselves also to prayer. There was a deliberateness there. And I don't think that, that prayer was simply just before preaching. Lord, give us power as we preach. But clearly, it was a time of simply being alone with God, in fellowship with God, in communion with God. You remember the example of our Lord Jesus Christ in Mark chapter 1. Busy day previously, but early in the morning, long before sunrise, as it were locking himself up with the Father. What was he doing there? In fellowship with the Father. And how it brings back perspective. So that as a result of that, there's a sense in which Jesus is able to come out of that place, say to his disciples who are saying to him, everybody's looking for you. And his answer amounted to the fact that, look, I'm not a crowd puller. That's not what God has called me for. I'm a preacher. So let's go on to the next time. I have to preach there as well. That came out of fellowship with the Father. And so when we're speaking here about the prayer life of the pastor as a source of power, it's not just that eerie mysteriousness that oozes out of the pulpit as you preach. It is the, the stability, the, the poise the equilibrium that is upon this servant of God among us. That when the whole place is shaken, when the economy is heading at breakneck speed downhill, there seems to be an anchor among us, a pillar of strength, our pastor. And it's not because he's saying to himself, I need to be strong, I need to be strong. But it is because he walks with God. He's in fellowship with God. He, as it were, comes down the mountainside with his face beaming, as was the face of Moses. That's something that must continue with you. Brethren, your prayer life is going to be a source of power 
unimaginable. It's not directly so. You're not just saying, God, give me power, give me power. But you are loving the Lord. You are in fellowship with him. You are walking with him. Very quickly, in addition, there is something I said earlier on. The devil will do everything in his power to kill your prayer life. He will keep you very busy, deliberately so. But secondly, he will introduce small sins in your life that will continue to grow. And I want to assure you, the moment your conscience becomes defiled, you will not love to be in the presence of God. You want. You want. You start finding every excuse because you are uncomfortable. You, you can't remain in, in cordial, intimate dealings with the Lord. Isn't that what happens in marriages often? When one partner begins to entertain somebody else? Have you noticed that the first complaint of the innocent party is the fact that my spouse seems to be very busy these days, very busy. We, we hardly spend time together. He's always saying, no, I need to get head off this way and head off the other and so on. And clearly, it's because there is something that has brought a breach in the relationship. So apart from him keeping you busy, the devil will want you to entertain small sins that will divorce you as it were from God and take true spiritual power from yourself. There are pastors who think that because it's just pornography, it's in secret. Nobody knows. Therefore, it won't affect my ministry. It will. And it will primarily because when you try to pray, accusations come to your conscience. You're uncomfortable. And consequently, you quickly wrap up and start finding excuses why you shouldn't pray. So, out of love for the Lord, wanting fellowship with him in a very positive way, do everything to protect that fellowship. And even if the evil one says it's just, it's just, it's just, recognize that your number one lover, God, doesn't say it's just. It's hurtful to him. Don't go that way. And then one more aspect here. In a sense, I'll come back to the issue of godliness in a moment. Is that of fasting. Now, I know that fasting is often looked upon as an old probably now irrelevant aspect of Christian life and living. If you read your Bible enough, you know that it was one of the ways in which 
God's people often showed their seriousness with whatever the issue is that was there between them and God. Did they sin against him? And they felt this matter is serious. They fasted. Was there a breakthrough they were longing for? And that wasn't coming. They fasted. And with an aspect that said to God, Lord, the matters that I'm bringing before you affect me. There are issues that I really, really, really implore you, oh God, to render the heavens, descend and deal with. Fasting. It's not something that your people are likely to know. Your wife probably will, maybe even your children, because you are keeping away from the family table. But it enhances something of your knowledge of God at an experiential level. That's part of this fellowship. Fellowship. The intensity which, with which you are seeking the Lord. I'm wondering whether these issues I'm dealing with here are issues that you have put down in recognition that the, in the long haul, my ministry will not be about putting up an act or about how gifted I am, but it's a fruit of my knowledge of the Lord, my fellowship, The man of God is supposed to be not so much some unique, mysterious individual, but one who knows the Lord intellectually and knows the Lord experientially. Now, part of the fruit of that is the godly life. The godly life. And I want us to quickly get to that. The godly life. It was the Apostle Paul who, writing to, in fact, both Titus and Timothy, or Timothy and Titus, he, he makes an issue of the, the way in which their own godliness is something that uh, so much is going to depend upon. He says, for instance, to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, you then, my son, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus and what you've heard of me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who be able to teach others also. He then says, share in the suffering as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits, and listen to this, since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. His aim is to please the one who 
enlisted him. He says in chapter 2 and verse 14, Remind them of these things and charge them before God not to quarrel about words which does no good but only ruins your hearers. Do your best to present yourself. There it is. Present yourself to God as one approved. And then he goes on to say there, rightly, a, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. I'll skip the next few verses and come to verse 19. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. And finally, here it is. Now in a great house, there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. And here's your responsibility now. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So what does that mean for Timothy? Well, Paul doesn't leave it in picture form. Listen to this. So, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Brethren, before we are preachers, we are first of all Christians. That's what we are. Christians. Nothing complicated about that. Just as the Christian life is one that involves personal sanctification, so each one of us must continue in that school of growing more and more in Christ-likeness. And if I could borrow the aspect of loving God with all our hearts, I would put it there that at the very center of our beings, we enthrone God as king. And therefore, anything that is already in our lives that would be displeasing to him should be our homework. I know you might be sitting there saying, now, come on, you're supposed to be speaking about pastoral preaching. Now that sounds like a lecture in the doctrine of sanctification. You don't divorce the two. You are not an angel that descends from heaven on Sunday morning, delivers that saith the Lord, and ascends again into heaven. No. You are a Christian with your own journey towards heaven, with your own weaknesses, your own failures, and indeed, your own sins. Oh, how you desperately need to be dealing with that. May I also quickly add the need for you to apply your godliness to your domestic sphere. 
how many pastors play the game that makes people think that they are truly godly when their own wives and children know they are not until the kids are old enough to begin gossiping about family life with other church members. And then the truth comes out that this man who stands here is a downright hypocrite. What he's telling us to do, he doesn't do. In fact, he does the opposite. And you would have taken a pistol and shot yourself right in the foot. That's what you've done. Because as you're preaching, you know what your congregation is saying in their hearts? Physician, heal yourself. Heal yourself first. We know too much about you. Heal yourself. So I want to make this appeal because of the temptation to neglect family religion. Don't do it. Don't do it. The future power of your pastoral preaching is going to hang a lot on the way in which you relate to your wife and the way you relate to your children. It will. Allow me to quickly add that once your life has been exposed with a public scandal, you have essentially put the nail in the coffin of your pastoral ministry, especially in that church. Now, I know many pastors try to survive such things. Evangelists, as I was saying, individuals that go from place to place may survive that. Because in most places they go, people don't know them. Everything is dependent on the publicity and marketing that has been put out. And so the people really believe that this is the most powerful preacher in this century who's coming to visit us. As a pastor preacher, you don't have that luxury. Your congregation knows you. Your church treasurer knows whether you love money or not. And I can assure you, you can't seal his lips. The talk will go through the congregation. The young ladies in the church will know if you are truly upright or not, if you are truly pure in your relationships with them, they will know. And your people will know if you are a strutting peacock going around because of some fame 
that has continued to develop around you, they will know. And oh, therefore, how we need this godliness as a source of power in an ongoing way as those who preach in a pastoral way among God's people. One of the things that it will do for you is that it will augment your applications. When you are preaching God's word, you finally have to say, therefore, brethren, this is what God demands of us. This is how we should live in the light of these truths. And guess what? The hard drive is going, is that the way he lives? Is that the way he lives? And therefore, a godly life takes away the excuses from the people of God. They begin to realize that this book is true the demands of Christ are real and we need not only to believe them but to apply them to our lives. The godliness. The godliness. Therefore, if I was preaching back home, this is what I would say. That the source of power in pastoral preaching is not you going to some mystical witch doctor who after he takes you through some experience you're now going to come back and you'll be knocking people backwards just as you bypass them. No. That's witchcraft. It's not Christianity. The source of power in pastoral preaching is loving That's it. It can't be any simpler. It's loving God. So I want to ask, is that the path you're on? If you were a piece of an, an onion and you were being peeled, will we find at the center of all your learning and all your interactions and, and all the goals that you have in life, will you find at the center a person who says grace has done something in me. It's given birth to a love for God. And all I want to do is to love him. My reading and my study is because I love him. My spending time away from the crowds to have fellowship with him is because I love him. My pursuit after holiness is because I love him. And all I'm asking you as a congregation of God's people, is this. Let's love him. Let's pursue love for him. Because that's what the Christian faith is. 
Is that you? Because if that's you, there will be a power on your ministry that will be unmistakable. And long after you are buried, people will say, there was a man here who knew God, loved God, and prevailed on us to love God too. Let's pray. Eternal God, it's so sad that often Although we seek, we, we, we know we need power, we seek it in wrong places. And here you are simply putting it before us. The same answer that is there even for an ordinary child of God whose personal testimony in a home draws unbelieving relatives to you. That same source of power is what you invite us to. Oh God most high, may you be pleased to ignite a flame of holy love for you that will glow throughout our lives and ministry. Until you bring us to glory. That we will leave behind the people. That will also follow after example. In loving you. With your hearts. Loving you. With your souls. Loving you. With your minds. We ask this for Jesus sake. Amen.